Uh, today we are in Psalm 130, which is a, a wonderful psalm, and uh, it's very short, but nevertheless, just a, a very uh, wonderful psalm, helpful um, topic is forgiveness. So let's, let me pray for us, and then we'll walk through Psalm 130. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day, for this morning, uh, what a beautiful morning it is, and the privilege to open up Psalm 130. Is a, it is a tremendous privilege, um, and we, we thank you for it. We thank you that we have Bibles, uh, either physical Bibles in our hands or on our phones, and uh, constant access to your word. I pray that that constant access would translate to growth and spiritual maturity and not uh, spiritual negligence and uh, spiritual apathy. And I, I pray for even this time now that we would be moved by um, the reality of forgiveness from our Creator and that we would see it as a means to bringing us into the fear of the Lord, and we just ask that your blessing would be upon this study, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, would someone just read the whole psalm for us? It's only eight verses, very short, simple. Somebody would just be willing to read Psalm 130. You don't even need to raise your hand, you just need to start reading, and... Um, Thanks, Madison. Uh, Psalm 130, uh, Song of Ascent. Out of the depths I cried, out of the depths I cried to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. All right. Thank you, Addison. So, let me ask you, who wrote this psalm? We don't know. Okay? That's okay. We need to get used to saying that when it comes to psalm authorship. We don't know. Most of them were written by David. Not all of them. Uh, a number, most of them have names attached to them, so we know who wrote them. This one does not. It's okay. Uh, I, again, this is the genius of the Psalter, that we're sometimes not given the name, sometimes we're not given the exact historical context, and that's helpful because they so readily and easily apply to us in our situation. Nevertheless, we do want to try to glean what's happening here in his particular situation. So we don't know who the author is, but that's okay. If you look at the superscription here, it is a song of ascents. Anybody know what that means? Song of ascents? Yeah, so that's a not a possible... It, so... Well, it could be here. Here's how you should say it. Um, that is a possibility. That's one that's been suggested. The problem with that is it doesn't explain the Psalms of Ascent that are written by David, right? Because he's prior, he's previous to the exile, previous to the temple, right? So you're right. That is what, so it's not as though Abilash is wrong in, in suggesting that because that's one of the uh, options that interpreters have suggested that this is the coming back to Jerusalem after the exile and you go up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's on a, an incline. 
And so you go up to Jerusalem. So even if you're looking at a map and you're going south, and they say, we're going up to Jerusalem, you're like, wait, no, you're going down to Jerusalem. No, you're going up to Jerusalem because of the, of the incline and elevation. Uh, so, but the problem with that is it doesn't explain the Psalms of Ascents that are written by David, and there are a few. So probably, however, it does have to do with going to Jerusalem. So one of the other options is that they would sing these on the steps as you walk up the temple steps. And again, okay, well, but that doesn't explain David's Psalms of Ascents. So probably the best way to think of it is what Abilash was getting to, just not with reference to the exile, that these are psalms that you sing on your way, or they were written in this way, to, they, you sing them on your way to worship in Jerusalem. Because if you're going to Jerusalem, you are ascending uh, in terms of eleva- elevation. So that's, uh, that's probably the best option. We just, we just don't know exactly what this means. Okay, but now the, the Psalms are the, the Israel songbook. We do know that these were used for worship, and so that's a reasonable um, suggestion. We're just not entirely sure or exactly sure. Uh, what type of psalm is this? Well, it's a lament psalm. It's a penitent psalm. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that because let's look here now in the first verse. A song of psalm of lament or uh, penitent psalm is where the psalmist recognizes his sin. He's grieved over a particular situation. He recognizes his sin, and he is crying out to the Lord in terms of his sin, in terms of his situation. He needs help. That's what these. That's this kind of psalm, a, a lament psalm, a, a penitent psalm, and this kind of lament brought about by a, uh, a situation which we're not entirely familiar with or we're not exactly sure what it is. If you look here in verse 1, it says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. We don't know what those depths are. We're not told. Again, this is, I think, the genius of the Psalter. We're not told, and that's actually helpful because you don't need to know the exact historical context and the exact depths that he's crying out. Is this a, what, is this a physical trial? Is this a spiritual trial? We don't know. Um, but he's crying out to the Lord from the depths, and so you can use this psalm now for your own crying out from your own depths, regardless of what they are. But in his case, we don't know what the, the depths are. But I want us to just click down quickly here to verse 2 and 3, and we're going to come back to verse 1. But he says, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. And then verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? And you might be thinking, well, wait a second. Um, he's crying out to the Lord from the depths. He's not, we're not told exactly what these depths are about. And now all of a sudden he's, he's talking about sin and iniquities. And then talking about needing forgiveness. With you there's forgiveness that you may be feared. And so what is going on here? And this actually is a relatively common theme in the Psalms where the psalmist will meet with a trial. Maybe it's a trial of persecution. That's often the case. David's being hunted down by somebody. Uh, Some ungodly people are after him. And he is in a physical trial of of persecution. And what that causes him to do is to reflect on his own sin. You might be thinking, well, what's the connection here? And I just want us to see this. This is an interesting uh, theme in the Psalms. And I want to talk about what this means. Because you can... You can misunderstand this connection um, 
to your own spiritual detriment, I think. So we need to understand this connection. So for example, in Psalm 6, 1 and 2, he says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love, for in death there is no remembrance of you in Sheol, who will give you praise. So in verse 4 and 5, you see that he's clearly enduring some kind of physical trial, trial of persecution, where he's being chased down. He needs to be saved. His life needs to be delivered. He's fearing for his own life because he says in verse 5, in death there's no remembrance of you. But it starts with asking the Lord to not rebuke him in his anger for his sins or discipline him in his wrath for his sins. Like, Why are we talking about sin here when you have a physical trial that's come upon you and you need deliverance from it? Uh, and we're going to answer that question, but let's go over now to uh, 25, Psalm 25, verses 17 through 18. Verse 17 in Psalm 25, The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Verse 19, consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Redeem, O Israel, out of all of his troubles. Clearly, a physical trial of some sort. He has many foes, many types of foes. Violent hatred, they hate him. And yet, at the same time, in verse 18, asking the Lord for forgiveness of his sins. Like, what, what gives? Like, what's the connection? Why are you thinking about your own sins when clearly the issue is that you have all these physical enemies around you? And that's what you're crying for deliverance, uh, from which you're crying, crying for deliverance. Um, Psalm 28, 15 and 16. Oh, wait, that can't be right, because there's no 15 and 16 in Psalm 28. I wonder if I meant... Um, Oh, I wonder if I just wrote down uh, 25 wrong. Okay, Psalm 69, verse 5. Uh, verse 1, 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire. There is no foothold. I've come into deep waters. The flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who would attack me with lies. What did I steal must I now restore? O oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let those who hope in you not be put to shame through me. So I just wanted to show you a few places where this connection between a physical trial and the psalmist even asking the Lord for forgiveness of sins, being aware of his sin, asking the Lord for forgiveness, asking the Lord not to rebuke him in his anger, not to be disciplined and so on. It's, it's, a, it's a common connection in the, the psalms. And here, here we are again. Psalm 130, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Okay, we're not told what the trial is, but it seems rather significant. He is in the depths. 
And the first thing he brings up is, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So what's the connection? Well, this is where we need to be very, very careful and tread a very careful biblical line because if we get this wrong, it's going to be, uh, it will hinder our, our spiritual growth, I believe. When you are undergoing a trial, what should you think about in terms of the Lord's discipline? Should you think this way? I am undergoing this particular trial. My car, I got in a car wreck. Um, an, an, a fellow employee is angry with me um, or doesn't like me. I fell down and injured my arm. Um, whatever, okay? Just think of it. You're, you're going through a, a trial. What's the first thing you should think of? Should you think the Lord is disciplining me for some sin in my life? What is that sin? What did I do? Did I, did I, did I, um, did I get frustrated in traffic the other day? Is that what it was? And I, and I cursed and I swore for the first time in 10 years. Is that, and the Lord is just disciplining me now? Um, is, is that what, is that should be the impulse? Is that what's happening here in the Psalms? That kind of thinking is, is more common than you would think among believers, unfortunately, but it's actually quite spiritually dangerous. Um, when you come upon a trial like you have here in the Psalms, it's not meant to cause us to think about, hmm, what sin is the Lord punishing me for, disciplining me for? Now, it could be the case that if you are um, engaged in sexual immorality, let's say, for example, and that leads you into a um, conflict in a relationship and sorrow and troubles in a particular relationship, then in that case, you can know that you're undergoing the Lord's discipline for uh, a particular sin because you're just undergoing the natural consequences for sin. Okay, so there are certain ways you can, can make connections from sin to the trials that you undergo. In fact, they're often self-inflicted. But generally speaking, when we undergo a trial, whatever that trial might be, whether it's large or small, we want to be very careful of drawing a line of connection between the, the Lord's discipline and that particular sin in our own lives and, and in the lives of others. Rather, and here's, here's, what's, here's what's vital, rather, we are to allow those trials to humble us and to consider our sins, not in terms of the Lord's direct discipline, but rather allowing this trial to make us more sensitive to the sin in our own life. So when a trial befalls me, I'm not thinking, what is the Lord punishing me for? What is the Lord disciplining me for? That's not what I'm thinking. But it does bring about a humbling in my own heart so that I do begin to more and more reflect on my sin. And I think that's exactly what the psalmist is experiencing throughout the psalms. There's other examples that I could have given you, not just those few, where the psalmist is undergoing a trial and his first impulse is, Lord, forgive me of my sins. So that trials have a humbling effect. They have a, a sensitizing effect to the heart so that we begin to, rec like, we come under the trial and we start to recognize, like, Lord, I just, yes, I am, I'm a sinner. I, I'm a, I have sin in my life. I need to repent. And, uh, and I'm not suggesting you punish me directly for some sin or something I forgot to do or did do or didn't do. But I do recognize in the face of this trial that I am a sinner in need of forgiveness. And I think that is the, the natural kind of impulse or bent of the regenerate heart, that a trial falls upon us, we are humbled, and the first thing we think is, I'm just, man, I'm... I'm a sinner, I need forgiveness, you know.
Um, and that's what's happening here in this psalm. Out of the depths I cry to you, be attentive to my voice, hear my pleas for mercy. My first thought is, I need forgiveness, right? I just, that's what I need. First and foremost, I need forgiveness. So that may sound overly subtle. I don't think it is. It's a very important way of thinking about our trials in relation to our sin. And this is important in, in, in terms of how we counsel each other too. Now, what was the problem and what was the fault of Job's friends when he counseled, when they counseled him? How did they counsel him? Yeah, you, your kids have died, you've lost everything, and you're sick, your health is gone because you did something and the Lord's punishing you for it. That, because the mindset was, is if you do good, God will bless you, and if you do bad, God will curse you. And that's, that was their mindset. And so, clearly, you're suffering, Job, so the, con the conclusion is, is you did something bad and evil. And you just need to confess it to us and we all can go home and the Lord will restore you. Well, they did not know that actually God considered Job the righteous man, one of the, the most righteous man of all who lived on the earth, and that this was actually a situation where Satan was allowed to test Job, or tempt Job in, in, this, in this period of testing from the Lord, and that it had nothing to do with his sin, right? And yet they had this warped mindset about the discipline of the Lord and trials and, and a misunderstanding about how the Lord works, and they came in with horrible counsel. And you read Job, and he is just constantly battling against his friends, saying, why are you tearing me apart like this? Like, I'm telling you, I can tell you, like, this is my life. This is what I've done. I haven't done anything against the Lord. And so this is, is this vital for our own thinking, and it's vital for the way we counsel others so that we're not loading this, this uh, grief upon someone, say, suggesting that you're undergoing this trial because the Lord is punishing you for some sin. You just got to figure out what it is, get it out of your life, and everything will clear up. That is horrible counsel, and that will devastate people. Rather, however, however, say, having said all that, when trials do befall us, it is spiritually wise and spiritually healthy to allow those trials to humble us and bring us to reflect on our own sin and make that a time of repentance and reflection and, and, and seeking the Lord for forgiveness. So that's all by way of introduction, but I think that is very, very important in terms of how we think about our own suffering in relation to our sin. So I'm going to stop right there, and I want to get questions to make sure that this is clear before we move on. Okay, any questions? Yes, Kai. Yeah. 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 In James one, like, are we talking about is there a division between the two different types of trials? Are we only uh, looking at which is we are undergoing through a specific trial like in James one? That is a very specific situation describing David versus David and Saul describing Job, you know, in that category. While David was at Sheba, that's a completely different situation that could be applied. So I would take James 1. So he uses the word various kinds of trials. 
Um, Right. So is it kind of like, oh, well, I, I come to this like feeling this ability, but I'm not being like tempted by God, being able to like tell him, be following me and hearing him say no, that means all good things come from, you know, the thought of life. And yeah, I do not think, so just for the record, I do not think that James is referring to the um, self-wrought trials that come with blatant disobedience to the Lord. So that, yes, that in terms of how you put it in two categories, that's what I was referring to earlier. In terms of you, there are times when you can draw a direct connection between your sin and the trials you're undergoing. David and Bathsheba, for example. And the Lord told him, like, it's, there's going to be trouble in your household and um, the child is going to die and, and these kinds of things. And the Lord revealed those things to him. But even, even beyond that, the experience of pain of conscience, uh, rebuke from um, Nathan, and then the continual trouble within his household because he had, he had brought an adultery into his, his household. Um, those are all, you can draw a direct line of the Lord's discipline between his sin and, so I would say that's a, a, a different category. Um, when, I, when I read James, I take this to mean trials of various kinds that you just meet as a, a believer, as a person living in a fallen world. Uh, and that are not necessarily self-wrought trials that have been brought about by your own blatant disobedience. Um, however, having said that, in Christ, here's, here's, the, here's, the, uh, here's the amazing part of it. In Christ, a Christian never fails. What? Say what? A Christian never ultimately fails, even, this is, this is wild, this is Romans 8.28 now in action, even when they sin. And that doesn't mean they don't, we don't experience uh, physical trouble and trouble in this life when we sin, but that the Lord uses even that to sanctify us and to teach us and to humble us and to instruct us and to make us, uh, form us more and more into the image of Christ. So, that is not now, you don't walk out of this room and go, oh, well, let us uh, sin more that grace may abound. That would, be, that would be blasphemous, right? That's not the way. But nevertheless, the encouragement to the Christian is that God's sovereignty is such, his providence is such, that he takes even our sins and turns them to our spiritual benefit. So even, even as we are receiving um, discipline for things that we know that we, we deserve and we've done, we uh, can know that the Lord is using even that to bring about spiritual fruit in our life and as we yield to him and, and submit to his uh, discipline, as it talks about in Hebrews 12, which when we yield to that discipline, it brings about what? The peaceful fruit of righteousness, right? So I would, just to, to affirm what you're saying, Kai, I would place those in two separate categories. I think James is talking about the trials that we meet in life as Christians, as just living in a fallen world, and he is not endorsing a kind of view to say, well, these are, um, these are the trials I'm undergoing, and, uh, and the, how did you put it, in the, in the, the Lord is, is tempting me, or, or however you put it, that that's, that's not what James is endorsing at all, but rather talking about the trials that we experience is just a normal course of life. And as we, um, 
As we meet them, we know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness has its full effect, and we may be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. So um, I would place those in two different categories. So I appreciate your using those two examples of David being chased from Saul and David sinning with Bathsheba. Any other questions? Yeah, Addison. Yeah, so if anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. This is John 5.13, is, or James 5.13. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of, the faith, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Uh, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So he's not making a direct connection to the sickness and sins. It's just if. So I think that's important, that if is, is highly important, that, the, that there's not some sort of direct connection between, oh, you're here, you're sick, and we have sick people in our congregation. Um, and we have, they've called us, and we have prayed with them. We have anointed them with oil, and we have prayed with them, right? And, and never once have we said, well, the reason you're here with us and in this dire condition, uh, health condition is because you've probably sinned. So let's, uh, let's figure out what that major sin is and take care of that. Um, if is, is, is key there. Um, and again, we do need to recognize, like even in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, some were sick. Why? Yeah. So <laughs> we do have to be open to that. The Bible's open to that. That you take the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, it may make you sick. I'm not making that up. That's just what the text says. And so um, here, uh, if someone is sick and ill due to uh, sin, I can't make that connection. James is just saying if they have committed sins, they will be forgiven. Okay? Um, but he's, by, by using the word if, he's, he's, he's making clear that there's not some sort of direct, you can't make a direct connection and correlation between a person being sick and them sinning in a particular way that they're now being disciplined for. But you still... That's why he says if. There's still, that's still always a possibility. And so um, I think it's just, it's just the way you frame it, it, we have to be wise, pastors have to be wise. And um, so, that, but I, I, I think the key, the key word there is, is if. Any other questions? All right, really, really important uh, categories here to get in, in place. And so I want, want you to be clear. Remember, clarity is the goal. So um, if you have any more questions about that, please talk to me. The, 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 the summary is, as we befall, as, as trials befall us, the impulse of the, of the healthy heart is to allow those to humble us, consider our own lives, examine ourselves, and, um, and ask the Lord's forgiveness for the sins that we do know about in our life. Okay, so he cries to the Lord out of the depths. And this should be an encouragement to you because we don't know what these depths are. They could be any kind of depths, whether they're caused by a physical trial, spiritual trial, whatever they are. But they are affecting him. Here's, here's the key. They are affecting him spiritually, whatever the trial is. When he's talking about depths here, 
he's talking about his own soul, right? Out of the depths I cry to you. This is metaphorical. And he's pleading for the Lord's mercy, which is the only way we can plead because he knows in himself that he's not worthy of help. So it depends on the Lord's mercy. The beauty of where we're at in redemptive history is that we know how the Lord has been merciful to us. So we can cry out to him in confidence knowing that he uh, hears us and uh, that he has been merciful to us and we know how he's been merciful to us, namely in Jesus Christ. But this is how he is crying out to the Lord and he's, he's pleading on the basis of God's mercies, which is how we have to plead. Um, this is how David plea, pleads in uh, Psalm 51 and also how he pleads in Psalm 25. He says, uh, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Hear my uh, voice in my voice to uh, give attention to my voice for my pleas for mercy. He is appealing to God's own character. For your own namesake, O Lord, for your because of your mercy. So he's pleading to God on the basis of God's character, the basis of God's mercy. And that's how we have to plead with the Lord, not on the basis of our own righteousness. Now, someone has asked, I think it was even a couple weeks ago, well, what about when David, or what might have been last week, what about David when he says, um, when he appeals to his own righteousness? He's not appealing to his, his own righteousness as though God owes him something because he is inherently righteous. He's, he's appealing to the fact like, in as much as I'm being accused of something, I'm not guilty of it. Okay, I'm being accused by my foes of, of a particular sin, and I'm not guilty of that. Okay? So that's an important thing to keep in mind. The, the basis for our pleas for forgiveness are always the mercy of God, the character of God, God's desire for his own glory, as he prays in Psalm 25, 11, for your own sake. So if you want deliverance, if you want deliverance from your depths, don't plead on the basis of how wonderful you are and how great you've done and all that you've done for the Lord. Plead on the basis of his mercy and for his own namesake, and he will hear you. Um, but uh, like I've said, whatever these depths are, they lead him to consider the issue of sin. And so he, he recognizes, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? This trial I'm, I'm, has, that has befallen me, it reminds me that of my biggest problem, my biggest problem isn't whatever trial this is. My biggest problem is my sin. Because if you, O oh Lord, would mark iniquities, who could stand? And the word mark here means like write them down, keep a record of them. Like, Lord, if you kept a record of, my, if, of sins, no one could stand in your presence. No one. Here's the, here's the wonderful turn, though. Verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness. But with you, what do you think the contrast is with here? But with you. Just think about the Psalms, think about the history of Israel. What is the contrast being made here? But with you. With you compared to who else? Idols, I think so. I think so. Idols. Um, I think it's a strong possibility. But with you, there is forgiveness. If you think about the idols, forgiveness wasn't really part of 
the idol worship. It was more like just appeasing them so they could bless you or not destroy you. That's what it was all about. Um, but with Yahweh, there is forgiveness. He's the one true and living God. And one of his qualities or attributes or character qualities is the fact that he is a merciful, forgiving God. And he actually forgives people who sin against him. And he is confident in that. But with you, there is forgiveness. Now, why can he say that? Remember what context he is. Why could he be so confident that the Lord is a God of forgiveness? Well, the Messiah hasn't come yet. They are looking forward to him. But the Messiah hasn't come yet. Yeah, Q. He is he's just forgiven Israel so many times, correct? He's established a sacrificial system for their forgiveness. You should go through the book of Leviticus and see how many times the word forgiveness is used there. That's what the sacrificial system was for, is for forgiveness. How did God reveal himself to um, Moses when he said, show me your glory? The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love forgiving the iniquities, right? Forgiving Israel's iniquities. That's how he revealed himself. He is confident in the fact that God is a forgiving God because God has revealed that over and over and over and over and over in Israel. The entire sacrificial system, this big elaborate sacrificial system was for the very purpose of forgiveness. That's what it existed for. So God revealed himself to the nation of Israel, among other things, as a forgiving God. So this psalmist could look at it and scan the horizon of gods out there and be like, whatever, with you there is forgiveness. I don't know what I'll get with those guys, but with you there's forgiveness. Now why does the Lord grant forgiveness? There's an aim in it, isn't there? What's the aim? What's God's aim? That we would fear him. That you may be feared. Right? This is a great question last week about uh, fear of the Lord um, and about forgiveness. This is what forgiveness is aimed at here. This is God's goal. He forgives not so that we can go and sin more so that grace may abound. He forgives that we might fear him. See, when you have the press and weight of God's wrath and anger and condemnation against you, that doesn't make you want to obey Him, does it? That doesn't make you want to love Him and enjoy Him. And it certainly doesn't make you want to fear and reverence and submit to Him, right? And it's almost counterintuitive. Like, wait a second. You know what gets you to fear and, and reverence and respect and obedience and love? Forgiveness. The weight of condemnation removed from your soul. Now, you do. You fear the Lord. And what does this fear mean? It's not a slavish fear. It's a reverence, awe, submission, respect, a yieldedness. That's what fear of the Lord is. I uh, just want to give you, I looked up a number of these references. I wanted to give you some of these because it's remarkable as you consider the theme of the fear of the Lord in the Old Testament, just in the Old Testament. What 
it leads to or what it produces. Um, Psalm 25, 12, the Lord will instruct the one who fears him. So if we're forgiven of our sins and brought into the fear of the Lord, respect, honor, reverence, awe, submissiveness, yieldedness, the Lord teaches those kinds of people. He instructs those kinds of people. Psalm 128, 1, I love this one. One and following, actually, verses 1 and 2. The fear of the Lord leads to satisfaction in one's work, blessedness, and a fruitful marriage. Hmm, that's interesting. That sounds pretty sweet. Where did that come from? It came from the fear of the Lord. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. <laughs> I didn't make that up. It's right there. That's an, that's an encouraging reality. It begins with forgiveness, leads to the fear of the Lord, and now you have these earthly blessings that follow from it. The fear of the Lord, we know in Proverbs 1-7, is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. You can't really know the way the world works or what life is all about or the most important things in life or how to prioritize your knowledge or how to prioritize your affections. You can't really know any of those things unless you begin with the fear of the Lord. And you get to the fear of the Lord through forgiveness. And we know now the only way to forgiveness is through Jesus Christ. Fear of the Lord comes through forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Um, boy, there's just so many. I don't want to overwhelm you here, but there are a lot. Um, verse, I love this. Proverbs 14, 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. I mean, all throughout, there's so many blessings that come from the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 14, 26. The fear of the Lord leads to strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. The one who fears the Lord. Proverbs 22.4, the rewards for humility and fear of the Lord is riches, honor, and life. In this life, maybe, and in the, certainly for the life to come. So those are just a few uh, out of the many uh, promises and blessings that are given to the one who fears the Lord.